to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Spencer Brooks, the founder and principal of Brooks Digital. Spencer, thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely, Steve. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on with you today. Uh, I was really intrigued to hear from you about the work that you've been doing uh, in the nonprofit sector, specifically around kind of HIPAA and what we can and cannot do. Um, I know that your your practice is a little broader than just that, but um, before I get started with some questions around connecting with audiences or, um, in the nonprofit sphere when there are those concerns on the table, can you just talk a little bit more about Brooks Digital? What is uh, your organization? What do you do? Of course. So uh, Brooks Digital is a digital firm and we specifically help uh, nonprofit health organizations to build a digital presence that improves the lives of patients. So uh, what I'm really passionate about is just helping uh, these organizations change the narrative, um, is what I call it, of patients who are just going on an emotional, messy journey um, through some pretty serious stuff. And so uh, we'll help those organizations to um, improve their digital presence so they can better connect with those folks and um, give them a better experience and a, a maybe a little bit more, more hope um, and confidence as they go through their journey. Great. So as many people are probably aware, the um, nonprofit sector is really strong in healthcare and all of its various facets of how it touches people's lives, advocacy, information, direct service provision. Uh, and because of that, a lot of us have heard of these HIPAA regulations and rules or certainly been asked to sign off on them if you've been to a doctor's office or whatever. Um, but before we get into what that means for nonprofits, can you just talk a little bit about uh, what is HIPAA? Why is that particular protection out there for people that are in the healthcare industry? Absolutely. So uh, the HIPAA regulations are really for um, uh, providers in the U.S. You know, if you're receiving money to uh, provide some sort of healthcare services, then HIPAA uh, applies to you. And uh, it covers really any um, personal health information. Um, you know, it's PHI is the, the acronym that they use a lot. That's names, it's email addresses, it's obviously the medical information, um, such as a diagnosis, addresses, basically anything that you could use to, to pin a particular person um, down and say that's, that's individually identifiable. And, uh, and so what it does is, is it just protects um, that patient information from being shared with other um, parties, with other organizations without that person's consent. So really it's a, it's a tremendous benefit um, for patients, but of course it does uh, create a lot of thorny problems uh, for providers. And uh, so that's, that's just a little, um, a little background there on HIPAA. And I, I will mention as well that um, for organizations who might be in the health space, um, but more on the support side where maybe they're not receiving money at all, uh, HIPAA probably doesn't apply to you. So you don't have to be freaked out about that. And I did want to mention that um, so that anyone listening who might, um, who might be in the health space, but not be receiving money for their services, uh, doesn't, doesn't uh, feel like all of a sudden they have to adhere to these regulations. Or at least not direct patient reimbursement kinds of things. If you got a, yeah. a government grant from your local county's public health agency to help promote um, these good things, you're, you're not being paid for that specific patient. So as you are working on gathering names of people that um, are attending meetings or whatever, you're not as concerned about this as somebody who's being reimbursed for services directly related to their health, right? Exactly. Okay. Um, another 
thing to mention on that as well is um, if your organization or uh, you have, have signed a, a business associate agreement. So um, for example, uh, that what that is, is um, it's, an, a, it's an agreement that someone, let's say like a provider, for example, who falls directly under HIPAA regulations, if they're disclosing and sending that information to um, a business associate, some sort of third-party provider, and that's you, then all of a sudden you're uh, you start to fall under that because you've signed that agreement. So there definitely are some nuances there. And, uh, but that's also worth mentioning and something to check out. Right. And this world has changed a lot uh, in the last, certainly, you know, 10 plus years around the Affordable Care Act, but um, in other ways too, because I think a lot of this was created around the idea that uh, if your health information got out to insurance companies or employers or something that that would could possibly be used against you in other areas of your life, um, it's a little bit less of a concern, at least as of the time of this recording, <laughs> I, should, I should clarify, sure. uh, where we still have pre-existing conditions protection and whatnot. But um, the idea that, you know, if if you're seeing something at a healthcare provider and, and um, you may be applying for uh, um, workers' compensation insurance later or whatever, that they shouldn't be able to just automatically access that without your permission. Often you'll be asked to give that permission, which kind of gives us that space to talk about when is it okay to talk to folks that have received services um, about things that aren't related directly to their specific healthcare, but are in support of the mission of that nonprofit organization. And I think that that's a really interesting space to get into because most of the time with charities, when we're doing our work, we want to look at people that we're providing service to as potential advocates for our mission, either maybe donors or people that would speak at an event or, or or share something on social media, um, that's a very normal thing. And in this case, I think folks are um, cautious about what can we ask for? What can't we ask for? When can we ask for it? So um, what's what's kind of the, the first starting point in that conversation about uh, uh, trying to get permission or engage the right way with continuing to engage people after services are started or delivered? It's a great question. I think it starts from a very legal perspective by getting explicit written consent from a client or a patient to engage in marketing communications with them. And that's a different consent than um, just getting them into your EHR system or your health management system, right? To say, we are, I agree to receive electronic communications from you. Uh, the HIPAA guidance delineates between marketing communications um, and uh, communications that are directly related to care in some way. And so I think that's a very important distinction to make is that that person, that, that patient, if you wanna reach out to them for something that's not directly related to your services or the care you're giving them, then you need to make sure that you have their consent. And, uh, and without that, then you're, running the risk of uh, violating HIPAA guidelines. So that's a that's a really foundational ground um, level guidance to, to start with. So when's the right time to ask? Uh, I mean, is it as they come in the door for the very first time or is there a better time when you wanna request that permission? What are your thoughts on that? I would suggest doing it with all of the other boring paperwork. Uh, that they're going to be doing at the beginning. So usually that's um, with the intake, there's a whole um, series of, of papers. And so I think the more that you can group that together into one single action, 
then the easier it's going to be. I think it's going to be pretty tough if you have uh, just the standard client or patient intake paperwork done, and then uh, the patient goes through or the client goes through the this entire process of, of care and service. And then later they get this standalone request for marketing, you know, to send them uh, marketing communications. That's a tough ask to do that. Okay. So um, I would absolutely advocate for bundling that all together at the beginning when all the other um, boring paperwork, as I mentioned, from the from the patient's perspective, at least, um, is being completed. Well, and how big of a reach do you go for right away? Because I think that, you know, this may be a vulnerable time in somebody's life if they're feeling ill and, and they're worried. Uh, if you say, boy, we'd really like permission to talk to you about everything all the time and use pictures and do all kinds of things. Um, I assume there's maybe a lower level here. And then perhaps as you start learning patient stories and uh, you, you say, hey, you could be a real ally in our communications work. We'd love to kind of feature you as a success story. Are you willing to do that? You'd come back later for something as in-depth as like using their story in pictures publicly, I, I'm assuming, right? 100%. Yeah. I think the the written consent is just that legal checkbox that you need to have out of the way. And then from there, uh, discretion and empathy is absolutely a part of that. I, if I were in that situation and maybe I was, I would, I knew that my patients or clients would be in an emotional position walking into that office. I might frame that, that marketing consent as a way to send them helpful resources mm -hmm. or things to follow up with them that are more value added rather than getting consent to use their story, their pictures, whatever to, to help, um, you know, your, your practice or something like that. And so, and that's what I really view, um, that lower level ask as is, Hey, can, can we get your permission to send you some, some valuable resources? Maybe after we, you know, you get diagnosed with, you know, say generalized anxiety disorder or something like that, we're going to send you, or we have some resources for you to help with breathing techniques or something like that. Um, and that's, you know, which, or other things that might be directly related to care, right. but we can get them on their, on that marketing email list with some very value added things. And then later down the line, if that person's, they have a real success story, then that's the time when you would approach it and maybe take it to that next level, make a bigger ask. So many folks who are direct providers of services in the nonprofit um, healthcare sector, uh, you know, make most of their money on uh, patient fees. So they're getting reimbursed by insurance companies and government providers and whatnot. Um, but they're always, you know, trying to encourage people to think about becoming donors to make up those last few percentages to um, really do the outreach, the extra services, all those things in community. And and here's where I think, you know, most people perhaps have their first moment of balking, like, well, we can't ask a patient to become a donor. That just feels like that would be against the rules, right? If we know about them because they were a patient, we can't transition that information into some kind of donor relationship management system if they're in this other one. Um, and I assume there may need to be some kind of duplication of information when there's permission that, you know, there's not going to be a, a break in a firewall to, to let your marketing system talk to the um, electronic medical record system. I'm guessing, but I don't know, uh, to just move that kind of, yes, they've given us permission to talk to them about our mission and community and why we're doing this kind of thing so uh, we can do that. But of course, I think it would be fantastic to be able to recognize that there was a relationship with them 
in as a healthcare provider and not just as a community good. So with all of that on the table, how do you start separating? What are you allowed to do when you talk to somebody outside of those things? Can you recognize that there was a relationship with them as a patient? Is it better not to, if you're going to be doing these other things, how do we stay on the right side of the rules and effectively start communicating to people for their support? That's a complex question. And, and I think there's a lot, the devil's in the details. Yeah, with sure. This kind of stuff. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so it, it, it's complex to unpack, but I think we should probably start with just on a data level, what you need to be aware of and what how you need to treat that information, right? Because to even be able to acknowledge someone as a patient or to, you know, personalize an appeal to them using their first name, that's personal health information. And so what you have to make sure of is as soon as that data gets uploaded into your, you know, your CRM somewhere, um, and that's usually in the cloud, now you've just shared that information with Salesforce or, mm-hmm. you know, something like that, right? Sure. And and that's like that from a HIPAA perspective, that's a big deal. So what you have to make sure of is that when you are putting that information into another system, that that, uh, that vendor that you're using has signed that business associate agreement with you. And, uh, and fortunately, I think that's, it's not uncommon. I think you'll need to ask about that, but from a HIPAA perspective, you've got to have that signed agreement because you can't, you're just sending um, someone's personal health information to uh, to a third party. And so I don't want to freak people out with that idea, but that's on a, a very surface level when you're transmitting and taking data from one system and putting it into another, you've got to make sure that those bases uh, are covered. And so I think once that is in place, then it, it matters um, how you're going to talk to that person. Again, we're talking on a compliance level. Like if you're going right. to send a one-to-one email with that person, then it does need to be uh, in, encrypted. And I, I know I'm talking about some technical details here, but we can't even get to you know how to how to do the more nuanced communications if uh, if fundamentally you know you you don't have the groundwork in place first. Right. And so I think that is very important. And so those are some of some of the examples um, that I would say, you just need to have that and have that set up uh, on a, a basic level before you even start to, to think about that. And fortunately, though, the good news is that if you just do, if you start asking your vendor about that, and you just start checking some of those boxes, I think most providers will be pleasantly surprised that uh, it's, it's easy to do. Um, of course, the alternative is, you know, you, you might be the one out of 10 or one out of 100 that realizes, uh-oh, uh, I can't do that with my CRM system. And that's a bigger can of worms. But I think for the most part, uh, folks will be able to to check that box with relative ease. So we we can ask for that permission, but uh, uh, just on, a, on that technical level, I'm assuming we are doing some kind of regular export of data uh, out of whatever electronic medical records or other data keeping system uh, to say, here's what we're allowed to know about this person. And then we import that into whatever donor relationship management or customer relationship management system we may be using for the, the broader solicitation. It's not going in there regularly and um, communicating 
that, you know, this person's had another appointment and we've also sent them this marketing email or are those things allowed to coexist? They don't usually coexist. Yeah. I think they, they are allowed to uh, when you have that business associate uh, agreement in place. I know some um, Salesforce, for example, has a, a whole API, which is just the automatic way of transmitting information between systems uh, that uh, adheres to a lot of um, healthcare specific uh, guidelines so that you can actually with you know, a substantial amount of money, you can integrate your, uh, your health management system, your EHR system to push and pull data into, you know, another direct solicitation system or something like that. But it's, that's, it's a lot to do that. And so to your point, Steve, I think a lot more folks are going to be doing the good old export. Right. And that's, um, and that's certainly the challenge is that depending on your patient journey. And I think for different providers that that's going to look different. Like if you are a clinic that specializes in mental health, then you might have a more defined patient journey and different stages that that patient could be on. And so you might have a better idea, um, uh, you know, when you export that information, uh, for example, like if someone's on the stage of they've just, you know, recently, um, become, uh, or let, let's say they just come into your, into your office, right. And, or have been recently diagnosed, you know, that, uh, that they're going to be going on a few other stages in that journey as they start to learn how to, to, to manage their mental health condition. And so when you're doing maybe a direct solicitation, well, you're probably not going to do it at that point because you're going to know in the patient journey, okay, like this is where this person sort of is at. Um, based on what we know about them. And so you can use that information to at least help infer where that person is on the spectrum. But it is a, it is a challenge absolutely to, to, to just simply marry the communications that you are doing inside and outside that health information system, that healthcare management system um, to ensure that the person is treated as a whole rather than these separate disjointed pieces. Well, assuming though that you're not going to be trying to export any more, um, how do I say, the sensitive personal information about the nature of why they were involved. And I think that as somebody who does fundraising, you'd love to be able to go in and say, uh, you know, wow, I, I see that, you know, you've been a um, you know, seen in our cancer clinic for two years now. And, you know, that's amazing. And holy mackerel that you've been, you know, on this thing. And here's how we'd like to support you and be, you know, all these things. I, I assume from a more marketing perspective, you're not going to know that, or is it possible to have some level of why they've been seen, how long they've been seen exportable to something like marketing, or uh, is that all in how you ask it? That is also another, it's a complex question as well, but I would say that it uh, depends on, well, it, uh, everything comes back to, to capacity, staff capacity. Mm. Depends on how often you're um, doing those exports and um, it depends on that, um, that EHR system. But I think, I, and going back to this idea of the patient journey, I think that's, that's one way that I see in, that, um, in the work that Brooks Digital does that we use to help frame the the general um, stages that people go on just to help 
talk to them more specifically in a more personalized way. If you're looking at each individual uh, patient, you're not going to, every, every human is an individual, is an individual person. And so it's going to be hard um, to, to personalize on that level. But if you do have a, a mapped out journey of where a patient might go and they're, they're different um, stages, then you can find a way to include that in your exports hmm. so that when, when you're in that, uh, when you're doing solicitations, you, you might understand that this patient is on stage four or whatever. And so I can use that to speak in a little bit more direct, a little bit more personalized way to make that, um, that appeal or that ask, uh, more appropriate for where they are. And so I think that's where I like to see that being married in the middle a little bit is, um, is being, is having that generalized down to, you know, say four or five different stages of a journey that then you can use and, um, go and be a little bit more personal. So if you're a smaller, more specific nonprofit provider where, you know, we, we do, you know, family planning services, for example. So there's a relatively more limited range of uh, things that you provide in a community versus, you know, we're a multi-million dollar hospital that provides, you know, several different types of clinics and outpatient services and inpatient and everything. Um, it may be easier or more complicated to kind of create those journeys to help you understand how to stay engaged with people and not kind of um, feel like you're, you're missing something in that conversation with them, I'm, I'm assuming. So if, again, I'm thinking that more of the listeners here are going to be um, that uh, um, uh, smaller federal uh, um, healthcare center, um, as opposed to the, the very, very large, you know, large providers. Um, they may have a smaller range of those journeys to kind of consider than the big ones. Uh, is that a fair characterization, or do you think it's still important to have more choice? I would agree with that. I think the more specialized your organization is to a particular condition, then the easier it's going to be and the more effective you'll be. I, I, I view it as a, a spectrum, okay. really. And um, and I've written about this um, a little bit more, actually, in an, um, an article on the Brooks Digital site. I can um, provide a, a link to this as well. It goes Great. into more detail on the um, the process of, of journey mapping for patients. You can, I think a good place for, for smaller organizations to start is, uh, is uh, what I'll call the general journey. Like, I think this is a journey that applies to the healthcare world and um, in pretty much everyone's in, in any case, and it only gets more specific. Um, and so it starts, and I outline um, this more as, uh, as well in the article, but I'll give the, um, the six different phases of that journey um, in brief. Um, and, and the first one is, is awareness, right? So that person becomes aware by doing a self-assessment of their symptoms, online research, maybe outreach to friends or on social media. They're becoming aware that there's maybe some sort of problem. Um, and then that moves into the second stage, which is help. And they're doing that initial contact with you as a provider um, because they've become aware of a problem. And then that's gonna move into care where they're going to get maybe assessed at your clinic or medical facility, and then into treatment, which is the onsite and, and follow-up care. You know, that could be medication, counseling, therapy, mm -hmm. or lifestyle changes. Um, and then it actually moves into, um, in some cases, 
lifestyle changes, like I just mentioned, which is can be adjustments to the daily routines and, and or habits um, to promote their long-term well-being. And then it can move um, into a final phase, which is ongoing care, which, if, you know, if you have a, um, a patient who's uh, been diagnosed with diabetes, they're going to, they're going to be coming back. Um, mm -hmm. And that's going to be a long-term ongoing care process. And so that's, it moves into that final, final phase. So those are the six, uh, the sticks, six stages of the journey. And I think if you're a small, if you're a small um, nonprofit provider, that's just a great place to start. And even understanding that um, can can be helpful just a, on a basic level of saying, hey, are they you know receiving care and treatment right now? Or are they more in the ongoing care or lifestyle change phase? And being able to speak and just know whether someone is actively going through that care process or if they're just doing follow-up work is going to be extraordinarily helpful. And then for the folks who might be targeting something more specific, like a particular disease or disorder, then you can start to really narrow it down into um, what a person with that disease or disorder might be going through and make it more specific. That's a super helpful framework to think about these things, I think, because um, all of that makes sense without having to reveal any specific information about that particular patient space. And, and it just feels like whatever you're saying in there could be, you know, respectful and engaging without being, you know, too specific or making that person feel like you shouldn't be using that information for marketing, whatever. Um, I think that's a great idea. I assume that there are some cases though, where, uh, I mean, this certainly happens in most nonprofit missions where person needed help, person got help, and person is, is really mostly done, you know, that if your particular type of uh, services are are such where there isn't going to be a lot of ongoing care in the future, we still want to stay in touch with those people about being supporters of this work so that they're available for other folks that need to come in and use them and whatnot. But they themselves may not be in any kind of ongoing relationship for care other than, as you've kind of mentioned and have hinted at in your marketing messages, just general, you know, good advice for most humans out there to stay healthy in the world. Yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's fascinating because it really, like you said, it depends on uh, the particular condition that they came in with. I think, however, that um, getting, while they're actually in your facility or they're in the middle of that journey, getting care, that if you get that consent to do, say, marketing emails to them or something like that, then I think you're, the goal of a provider should be to capture that person um, as, an, as an email subscriber and maybe as a social media follower or some other way where you have access to them. Because yeah. when, they're, when they're gone, they're going to be gone. And so if you strategically do, uh, do the work to make sure that you have their, their, either their contact information or that you've got them to follow you on social media, then you've set the stage for follow-up communications. And certainly that can be uh, even a journey stage, right? Where, you know, maybe they're, they're just done. They're, they're a success story. Right. You know, if, if, um, if you run a clinic that is, you know, specializing in like, it's a rehab clinic or dealing with addictions, right? Mm -hmm. The, the output of your work, if, you know, if you're doing your job is that person is not going to need you when you're done. Uh, but, hopefully they will have experienced a radical uh, transformation as a result of your work and they have good positive feelings. They're going to remember that you were a part of that journey. Right. 
um, and that you played a hand in that. And so I think that's a very appropriate context in which to reach out to someone, but you've got to have that contact information and you've got to make sure that you've laid the groundwork from a HIPAA, push, a HIPAA perspective as well uh, as um, just uh, uh, the perspective of um, giving them good information from like a marketing perspective. Like you're not, um, you mentioned a little bit ago using information that's too personal. And right. I think that's what I was thinking of in that, in that context is you're not using that, that marketing permission to target them in a way that feels creepy. Yes. So um, that's, um, I think that's how I would think about communications with folks that uh, maybe don't even need that ongoing care or they're done. No, I, I think that's important. I, I think one of my examples in my head that came through was I some years ago needed some physical therapy around a shoulder issue. And the intention, of course, was once that physical therapy would be done, that that problem wouldn't recur. I may not need a physical therapist again. I hope, you know, let's, uh, but I was in regular contact with them over a period of several weeks or maybe even a few months. I can't remember now, but, um, and now you want that person to be thinking of them as that's the community resource that helped me. That's the community um, based organization that I can refer people to that I can support in the future, maybe even transition to becoming a donor, uh, even though I may not have a direct care relationship with them ever again. And I think that's what we're hoping to build this opportunity again, respect. And, and never trying to, uh, you know, play on anything that's inappropriate. But I think we do really want to look at um, if you've had a good positive relationship with a nonprofit provider in your community, um, how do we ask you to stay engaged in whatever is the right way to do that? Um, so recognizing that, um, what are some of the ways, well, let me back up and ask the question about whether this is even a space that um, Brooks Digital works and do you help uh, those folks kind of envision what are some of the marketing ways you can stay engaged with these audiences once you've gotten permission and moved this information and kind of set up these journeys? Uh, or are you much more on the kind of technical and advising side of how to do it right, but the content is maybe something else? That's a good question, Steve. So a lot of the work that Brooks Digital does, it's going to start with that, that patient journey mapping that we discussed. So I think that's really the foundational work. And that involves like the audience, the research is, you know, what we'd call it is actually talking to folks and helping providers to understand what, uh, what that patient journey looks like for them. And then from there, it usually becomes obvious um, in most cases that there's some sort of deficiency, maybe um, that, that there's a hole in one of the stages of that, those of the journey, for example, with the um, the aftercare, right? Like you mentioned with the physical therapist, the organizations will realize, hey, you know what? We're actually not even, we're doing a really poor job at, uh, at following up with those folks. And, um, and then from there, uh, the work that we would, would do is um, help ensure, hey, that there's the compliant email marketing systems in place and that we're using the information that we found about the, uh, the audience um, and say, here are some ways in which you can communicate with them. Uh, for example, they had a really great experience like they, with that physical therapy appointment and they really like how involved you are with the community. So maybe you should mention the program of how you're, you, that you're offering to um, serve underprivileged children with sports injuries or something like that, right? This, right. Is how, this is how you would communicate with them specifically. But I think it really comes back to 
uh, having an understanding of that patient journey and the audience in a way that you don't feel like you're communicating with and to a, this anonymous unknown person where you have no idea where they are on the spectrum of that patient journey, that you have a validated view of your audience and you've talked with them and you have some notes and you have a pretty good idea of what that person wants and needs at each stage. And so then you have the ammunition to go and to communicate with them, whether that's, um, you know, from a fundraising perspective or, um, you know, maybe they're just trying to um, build awareness in the community. And so uh, a lot of our work is giving that ammunition to organizations and then helping them from that technical perspective to implement that on their website um, from an email marketing perspective and to give them the content suggestions so that they can go and have the playbook that they need to speak in a more personalized, direct way to the people they serve. Okay. So does that include you know, evaluating and talking about different um, email marketing platforms and tools and whatnot if they're um, you know, maybe going to move up a level or two? Because I think that um, some of these organizations may have been doing some basic uh, advocacy and email marketing types of communications to smaller audiences. But if they open the door to the clients they serve directly, it could be a larger group suddenly. And now you've got to have a, you know, perhaps more robust response to that. Do you uh, help some of those providers envision what those things are, implement them, or is you much more the um, electronic health record side? I think it's a lot more on the marketing side. Oh, okay. I, I would say that, um, yeah, the electronic health records is certainly something that interfaces with the work, but I'm, um, and the work of Brooks Digital as well is much more focused on that the marketing, the technology. So with, when it comes to selecting the email provider and, and those details, um, I, I find that there's, um, and I mentioned this a little bit, but that there's sort of three levels um, mm -hmm. on that, that um, email marketing uh, ladder, so to speak with HIPAA compliance and who you choose depends on where you are. And it, it gets a lot more specific and a lot harder to, to do once you move up that ladder, uh, that ladder. So I think the good news is that um, that on that bottom rung of the ladder, and I'll just um, I'll actually give you those those three rungs really fast, so you know what we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, so so the first level is doing uh, probably what most providers are doing if you're if you're doing email marketing at all is a one size fits all um, email. So that's just the the generic e blast. Kind of hate that term, but yeah. <laughs> in this case, I think it's, I think it's perfectly appropriate because you are kind of just like blasting people a little bit sometimes if it's not super personalized, but it's where everyone starts. And so the good news is that with that, as long as you've got their consent to receive marketing communications from you, and you've done the sufficient work to train your staff to say, Hey, like, please don't export someone's medical condition and upload it to MailChimp. Um, <laughs> then, uh, you know, you're going to be in a, you're going to be in a good space. Um, and so when you do that, however, you do need to make sure that you're really just uploading this person's email address, nothing more. You don't want to um, upload or use any personal health information there. And so when you're on that level, you kind of have the pick of the litter. Um, so that's great. So pretty much anything that you're going to run across, you can do that because um, as long as you're excluding that personal health information, you're great. If you move up a, a level though, you start, if you want to start personalizing with um, personal health information, start to address someone by their first name from an email marketing perspective, then all of a sudden um, the 
options really start to narrow down. Um, and this is, it's, it can be a gray area. And honestly, if you Google around, um, it's, uh, you'll find different opinions. Hmm. Um, I'm, I'm of the, I'm going to be more cautious with my recommendations. Uh, for sure. There is a particular provider, um, uh, named, uh, the name is Powbox, I believe. Um, and they offer, uh, HIPAA compliant email marketing. And what you'll find is that the vast majority of your typical email providers will not sign that, um, business associate agreement that I mentioned with you, yeah. uh, or mentioned to you, but, uh, or if they do, then in the fine print, you're going to find that, um, you can't actually, you, you might be able to upload that personal health information, but you can't send it. So there's kind of a thorny, uh, there's a, there's a thorny layer to that. So if you want to start personalizing, then it really narrows down. And, um, I actually, um, I have an article scheduled to go out about the three levels of, um, this email marketing ladder as well. And in there, there's a link to, um, a different, you can visualize which email providers will and will not sign that business associate agreement with you as well as, um, which ones might be HIPAA compliant. And so it's really useful if you're, if you're, um, trying to analyze and pick, um, an email marketing provider. So I can include a link to that. Um, and then the third level is starting to use marketing automation. And so that's, um, you know, oftentimes you like some more advanced providers such as Salesforce and things like that. will use that. So you can send like automated email sequences and triggers and all this fancy wizardry stuff. And once you do that, um, it gets narrowed even further where you start to have to use basically either, I think, Salesforce or Infusionsoft and um, then configure it to send through um, Powbox or another provider that is HIPAA compliant. So um, the whole point of that really um, is that number one, um, as you move down the ladder, the good news is you have more options. Mm-hmm. And so most providers are going to be at that first level and they're not going to have to worry as long as they're not uploading or sending like people's names or conditions. But as you move up, you, it does start to get more restrictive. And uh, in, in some cases, you have to do some customization. So depending on where that organization is, um, then you know that's, that's something that um, Brooks Digital helps. We can recommend and we do those um, sort of, of things. But even if you're at that first, first level, um, it's, uh, it, there's good news at least that you can, uh, you can, uh, mostly have your pick of the letter there. Good. Well, and I think that it's, I'm really glad to have this conversation with you and to share this with the listeners, because I think that, um, there's too many people in the charitable sector that, uh, if they feel like there's a potential for doing something wrong, the, the immediate response is just don't do it at all rather than, well, let's go find out how to do it right. Um, so I, I appreciate that levels of, if you're, Sticking at that first kind of e-blast level, you know, if you've asked permission and you've moved that information out of that system and into whatever, probably in good shape. But I do think more people would like to be able to personalize that connection more. And there's ways to do it, um, but we need to go in eyes open and with some perhaps expert help to make sure we do that right. And I think that there's a couple of good reasons to do that 
Um, you know, again, for most of the organizations I've worked with in this space, the vast majority of lives they touch are, you know, people that they provided care to in one way, shape or form. You want to be able to talk to those folks in, in broader ways than just about their care, but about the bigger mission. And I think if there's a lot of them, if that's where the numbers are, um, that absolutely it, it's worth examining what are the costs, what are the um, uh, responsibilities to, to go do that. Um, but I think that the the broader audience, again, of people that you have had past relationships with uh, is absolutely out there. Is it possible to go backwards and ask for permission for people that had been uh, um, engaged as um, clients or patients uh, and see, you know, gosh, you were here a couple of years ago. We're starting this community communications effort. We'd really like to be in touch. Is it okay? Um, can you go back and do that with that large number of folks that maybe you didn't ask permission from back in 2012, but they're still big, strong community supporters if you just talk to them? I love that idea, Steve. I think um, that's a huge untapped audience. And uh, yes, you're going to have to, if you haven't got that written consent, then you're going to have to go back and you're going to have to get it first. But I think if you do that in a, a value added way, so, in, and what I mean by that is in a way that is more about giving to them rather than extracting something useful, then I think that's a good way to approach getting that consent to say, uh, and even if that is in a way where you say, Hey, listen, I know you've, you had a, a great experience with us and, you know, we're starting uh, this, this new program and we need you to either share this link or we need you to give $25 or we need you to give $50. Um, and that's going to help other people get that same experience uh, you know, that, that you have, um, something, something like that, I think, um, or even, you know, it, you have to toe the fine line between actually marketing to them while <laughs> trying to get their consent, right. but just to, um, just to, to, to do that in a way where it, um, is not needy, I think is, um, the important point that I'm trying to get at there. But I, Steve, I think it's great to, to consider that audience and to go back and say, Hey, let's, uh, let's go and talk to them and make sure that we have their consent to, to talk to them. But, um, and that's permissible though. That. I mean, if, yeah. if the only thing in the communication is requesting permission to do more communication rather than saying, you know, without asking you here, we're sending you this, you know, invitation to come to this public event in two months or whatever. Um, but rather to, to do that as the only thing you're allowed to go back under HIPAA and request that permission, you know, after that person hasn't been engaged with you for a little while. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Because I do think that, you know, I talk about this phrase in fundraising all the time that, uh, you know, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago, but the second best time is now. Uh, so it would have been great if you'd set up all these systems, you know, um, a long time ago and been capturing permission this whole way through. But don't forget those people that have been part of that journey for, you know, a long time as community advocates, just because you don't have them coming in at the introductory funnel part right now. I think that that's a real opportunity. We just have to recognize recognize if there was a client relationship, you can't just throw them on an email list and started and, and communicating with them without 
clearing that box and getting that permission. So we're running really low on time. Uh, and I, um, I'm amazed at how quickly this conversation has just blown by because I, I had some more questions, but I uh, do want to give you a moment to just kind of offer any um, thoughts that you may have about uh, nonprofit organizations that are thinking about this issue and kind of where do you recommend they start and then how they should stay in touch with Brooks Digital. Sure. Well, I think for the the provider that is thinking about upping their email marketing game, I think a great place to start, and I really always advocate this, um, you know, for for any organization, not just clients of Brooks Digital, but is to benchmark your digital presence. That includes your your email numbers against the nonprofit uh, the nonprofit sector and your issue space as um, as a subset of that to understand where you're doing well and uh, where you're not doing so well. And I think that gives much more tactical, useful information for you to, to go to go forth and conquer with. Um, and I think what's especially interesting too is that the benchmarks for health organizations are actually even different than the nonprofit sector as a whole. And, um, I, and I put together a list of, I actually went through all of this data, the publicly available, available benchmarks and I found uh, 10 digital benchmarks that are different for health and uh, health organizations in particular. And so, um, and that's a, available uh, as a download on the Brooks digital website. And I'll make sure and throw that up um, on a, on a page. Uh, we can just use, um, I think a good URL for that is um, if you go to brooks.digital, uh, it's not .com, it's dot, uh, .digital. It's one of those fancy, yeah, fancy new, new domain names. Uh, so it's brooks.digital. Uh, uh, forward slash next in nonprofits. And then oh, I'll great. just throw up um, the, the articles that we mentioned. I think I t we talked about um, the journey mapping. We talked about the different levels of HIPAA compliant email marketing. And yeah. um, I'll throw up the digital benchmark thing there as well. And I think just go go and check that out. Um, go benchmark your organization, see how you're doing. Um, or if you, you know, if that's, um, you know, too much, then you can at least check out a few of the few of the uh, um, uh, benchmarks that might be different and kind of that, that'll be some uh, fuel for thought. I think that is just great advice for a beginning place to see what might be more possible, what others are able to accomplish. And, and maybe you had thought, oh, I, I can't open that door. And then you look and see, oh, other people have successfully opened that door and, and they're seeing some response. And I think it's a great idea to begin your journey there. So we'll include that link in the show notes. And I'm just so grateful that you took the time to talk through this uh, with the audience today. Spencer is so important. Uh, Spencer Brooks is the founder and principal of Brooks Digital. And thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Steve. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. <laughs>